Hi, if you remember last season of Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom, it's the podcast where I speak with some of today's most prominent and active agents of change. People who see the wrong in the world and are driven to make it right. You'll definitely know our guest today from her storied acting career, but her activism, educational excellence, and the impact she has had globally is something even more to be admired. Everything from poverty eradication to GDP to the transmission rates of HIV are predicated by bodily autonomy and control of our reproductive lives. You know, if I can't control if and when a male has access to me sexually, I really don't have much of a chance. Her dedication to the global cause of empowering women and girls over their own destinies is just as impactful and inspiring as her own story of vulnerability and triumph. Ashley Judd, right now on Righteous Convictions. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom. This is the podcast where I have the privilege of interviewing some of the people who I most admire. People who are doing righteous things in the world for no reason except that they can. And today, I have the absolute joy of speaking with somebody who I admire as a thespian, but even more so as a humanitarian and as a human being. And I am referring to the one and only Ashley Judd. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. Thank you. Well, I meant every word of it. And, you know, you've had, from what I can tell, such a rich life. Yes. I guess you probably fulfilled whatever your goals were when you were in acting school and working as a hostess at the Ivy, from what I understand, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's, it's almost a classic American dream thing, right? <laughs> you go to LA. Let's talk about that before we get into the humanitarian <laughs> stuff. I got to know, because it's, it's almost an impossible dream, but you made it happen. What'd you do? How'd it happen? Oh, my gosh. Yes, that's a good story. So, you know, the reason I wanted to work at the Ivy restaurant on Robertson, it was because they had a lot of flowers, you know, it was a pretty place to be. And I'm ultimately a child of Appalachia. And I grew up spending a lot of time in the woods and the wilderness. And Los Angeles, it's a big old city. And I was able to go there some when I was a teenager, you know, and my family, my mother and sister were the Judds. And we would go to that restaurant. And I just thought it was a beautiful country looking place. And so I had a frame of reference when I showed up in Los Angeles to study at Playhouse West with Bob Carnegie. And I needed to support myself somehow. And then, of course, you know, my first movie was Ruby in Paradise 
which is a, a great feminist independent film that won the Sundance Film Festival. And so I both worked really hard and I, I had very auspicious circumstances. And I just want to say about my Ruby and Paradox audition, you know, that script, when I read it, I just wept the entire time I was reading that film. I identified so profoundly with the character. And when I was driving over to read for Victor Nunez, the writer-director, I, 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 I was so overcome with this depth of need to convey to him the, the level at which I understood his movie. And I was just choked with emotion. And that's all I was able to say to him was, I understand your film. And it was between me and I think Mary Louise Parker, who was a much more established actor at the time, you know, and she had done both independent and commercial movies. And, and thank God he just went with his gut and he cast me in that film because it absolutely changed my life. It's a lot of serendipity in that story, right? I mean, just all the planets aligned and you were in the right place at the right time with the right degree of talent, obviously. And then from there, well, everybody knows you went on to make so many films that have become an important part of the American pop culture landscape. And I think you became really sort of an American treasure, you know, for the roles that you play. But, but then moreover, for the person that you have become, or maybe you always were, Somewhere along the way, you became a leading advocate for a number of causes. But was there like an aha moment where you sort of found your calling, so to speak? Mm. I, I appreciate the question. And I should say, you know, when I was explaining to someone who's close to my family in 1990 that I was going to Hollywood I was also describing the social justice work that I was going to do when I arrived in L.A. I was saying, you know, I'm going to I'm going to help protect people who need to go to Planned Parenthood to get whole woman care and need access to family planning and safe and legal abortion. And I was listing all these things that I was going to be involved with was just to be a continuation of my work at the University of Kentucky as an activist. And, and this man said to me, are you going to be an actor? Or are you going to save the world? And of course, that's such a binary question and such a reflection of that black or white thinking that a person and particularly a woman must have an either or kind of life. And in my insides, I just knew, well, why can't I do both? <laughs> so I always had it in me that I would need to be a whole person. And coming from the coal fields of eastern Kentucky, where there was just extraordinary both environmental exploitation and labor exploitation. I think it's in my DNA. And then obviously the sex and gender oppression that comes with all of that. It was just the water that I swam in. And then, of course, the really pivotal thing that happened to me was I was molested for the first time that I remember when I was seven years old by an old man in our community. And I immediately went to the two first adults I, I came upon and I explained exactly what had happened to me, and they denied my reality. They said, oh, he's a nice old man. That's not what he meant. And, you know, that sort of patriarchal denial of my experience of my body and denying the violation that I, on such a visceral and cellular level, knew had occurred to me was so formative. And it's important that I say the first time I remember because I also was assaulted in a Kmart when I had on my my green and gold cheerleader uniform from Northside Junior High, and my mom was there, and this man apparently like grabbed me and was trying to drag me toward an exit. Who knows what his intentions for me were? 
And I was, I, I, I screamed and I yelled and I wriggled out from underneath him and my mom pressed charges. There's a police record of this. I have no conscious memory of that assault. I have no memory of it. And so there may have been other things that happened to me because I was a very unsupervised child because of the circumstances of my parents' divorce. And I lived alone for two years as a child. Um, when the judds went on the road, mom left me. And then I went to live with my dad the next year. And he was deep in the throes of serious addiction. And he left the state to go practice his addiction. And he left me alone for a year. And there was no intervening neighbor, no friends, parents, no school teacher, no guidance counselor, no social worker, no entity of the state, no community watch person who interfered on my behalf. I'm a three-time rape survivor. And again, I say that's you know what I remember because there may have been other incidents that for reasons of the brilliance of the brain and trauma management that I have simply bl blocked out. Um, and one of those rapes resulted in pregnancy. And, you know, what I discovered about that is that the rapist had paternity rights in the states where both the rape occurred and where he was a resident. And so all of these things absolutely formed me to care so much about the bodily integrity and autonomy of, of girls and women for the kids who are here and have no advocate, you know, who are suffering. I think it it absolutely made me who and what I am. And I always have to make sure that I add this part. You know, my parents and I today have a beautiful, tender, whole relationship. Those relationships have healed, but my parents just weren't able to care for me properly when I was growing up, is the plain old fact of the matter. And what it has done is given me a heart and a passion and a, and a ferocity to care for those who are needy, vulnerable, and defenseless. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. 
my friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The essential building block of a fair and free democratic society and the indicator of peace is how a society treats It's girls and women. There are powerful studies that show that a society's proclivity for war and violence can be directly measured by intimate partner violence and, in general, its violence towards its female members. And everything from poverty eradication to GDP to the transmission rates of HIV are predicated by empowering girls and women to be full actors and have full agency and full participation in the social, political, cultural, educational aspects of society. And that starts with bodily autonomy and control of our reproductive lives. You know, if I can't control if and when a male has access to me sexually, I really don't have much of a chance of staying in school, learning a trade, being able to earn an income, controlling that income. And if I dedicate it to my children, to the health care of my family, to contributing to, you know, the education of my children, helping make decisions about the ages at which the girls in the family will and will not marry, having influence over, you know, how the boys treat the girls in the family, all of that stuff. And so it really comes down to the empowerment of girls and then also, you know, attitudes that boys have towards girls and creating better norms that reduce harm and reform toxic masculinity. And so that's my bottom line. And when Population Services International first reached out to me, about working with them as what they were going to call their, their their global ambassador, you know, I basically wrote them back. It was very funny, and you know, I'm I was so serious, and and I am, you know, I I kind of am unabashed about that. This sort of two paged single spaced feminist tone because I wanted to know what their values were and if we were congruent. It was something that my first women's studies teacher, Professor Janine Blackwell, would have been so proud of. And they wrote me back, yes, we're a feminist agency, and. You know, and that's and that's my criteria. And so everything that I do really boils down to that. So that's how you began your work with youth aids through Population Services International. Right. So that is what really took you to some of the most impoverished corners of the world, visiting slums, hospitals, brothels, clinics and everything in between. Can you tell us about some of your work? I love this work so much. And part of what is so meaningful to me is that there's just a lot of love. You know, I'm, I'm a person who likes Jesus. I think that he was a great radical, you know, who came to be with the disenfranchised and the poor and the rejected who, 
sought to upend empire and came from a great wisdom tradition. And that's kind of how I regard him. And I try to see the universal Christ in everyone. And I've, I've been to a lot of trash heaps and been with generations of women who pick trash and whether it's separating the different pieces of a ballpoint pen or an old fashioned kind of telephone and stripping the different kinds of wires or, you know, taking apart electronics or sitting on tires and, you know, just spending a day on a, on a stinky, heaving, rotting trash heap and sorting through garbage. Um, and the grandmother just loving, loving on me and caressing me and my resting my head on her shoulder and the power of the nurturing that happens and the bonds that are formed and knowing that I can't make promises to people. I'll probably never see them again and they'll never see me and we won't keep up with each other. But this ineffable transcendent love that happens is real. And I, and I carry their stories with me and I tell their stories and somehow they have appreciated that I'm there and that they have been seen and witnessed and validated in their experience. That's something that I learned from Bob Keegan at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He said, you know, when I really see someone, when I really, really see them, I am recruited to their welfare in a way that is inexorable and unforgettable. Wow. <laughs> Say that again. When I really see someone, I am recruited to their welfare in a way that is inexorable and unforgettable. Wow. I mean, so that beautiful and profound bit of prose brings us right to the next stop on your journey. So while immersing yourself in this work in some of the most poverty-stricken parts of the world, as well as continuing your acting career, at some point, you decided to find time to go to... <laughs> <laughs> to freaking Harvard, right? To get your master's degree in public administration. I mean, <laughs> I got a one word question for you. How? So I always intended to go to graduate school. You know, when I went to Hollywood in 1990, I never lost the interest, you know, and as we sort of started this podcast, I'd never thought I had to be this binary either or type of woman. And I felt I could live a whole life and have my whole story and all my interests. And so I just decided it was time to go to graduate school. And I went to see this professor at Vanderbilt because I just assumed I would go to Vanderbilt because it's, you know, close to where my home is in Tennessee. And I explained to him the things in which I was interested. And he'd done his due diligence and had some ideas for me. And at the end of our conversation, he said, why aren't you going to Harvard? And excuse my language, but I said, why don't I put a rocket ship up my ass and go to the moon? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before. It's great. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> and then he explained to me why I should be going to the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And I went home and I called Professor Carolee Flinders, who's this comparative lit scholar. And she said, well, you need to look at the Women in Public Policy program at the Kennedy School which I immediately did. And I started to cry. I started to cry. And I said, these are my people. So I went to Harvard and I just loved it so much. And I chose to take, you know, more classes than were suggested and to focus on my relationships with faculty. And I cross-registered at the law school where I took gender violence, law and social justice. And the paper I wrote there won the Dean Scholar Award. And I became great friends with my professor, Diane Rosenfeld. And 
I took Health and Human Rights, which was so suitable for all the work I had done internationally with Sophia Gruskin at the School of Public Health. And then I met Bob Keegan at the Graduate School of Education, who's a great buddy now. And I mean, I just had such a rich experience and my cohort represented like 110 countries and it was just the best. And then I became leader in residence at the Women in Public Policy Program and my partner is on faculty at Human Evolutionary Biology, and now we have a research camp in the Congo where we study bonobos who are matriarchal and egalitarian, and life is just incredible. You ended up putting a rocket ship in your brain. And <laughs> 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 uh, going to Congo. And while in Congo, you worked with the Enough Project, which is an organization that works to support peace and to end crimes against humanity. And Eventually, in 2016, you began working with the United Nations Population Fund, or UNFPA, which supports women's sexual and reproductive health throughout the world. Yes. I love my work with, with UNFPA, the United Nations Agency for Reproductive Health and Rights. And, you know, what we do at UNFPA is help empower girls and women to plan and space the births of their children, access to voluntary family planning choices, and try to help ensure that youth have safe childhoods and can grow up to be empowered adults who have agency over their lives. And, you know, that work has taken me to Eastern Ukraine and the war zone and to Bangladesh to work with in the refugee camps there and South Sudan. I mean, I got to help deliver a baby in a refugee camp in South Sudan. I mean, just I've done acro yoga in Turkey with Syrian refugees and spent time in, in Azraq and in Zatari refugee camps in Jordan and just extraordinary adventures where my heart has been broken into a million pieces and I've been both been able to give love and receive love in return, but really see the power and the value of these grassroots programs that allow women to reclaim little bits of their souls. You know, obviously there's a lot of gender-based violence work that helps women with psychosocial support and gives them a little bit of a safe place, whether it's just a break from the searing heat and dirt and the relentlessness of being on the run to information about preventing themselves from being prostituted or looking for the signs that their girls are about to be trafficked, you know, in safe birth kits, which allow women to have a hygienic pad, a razor blade, sterile gloves, and a bar of soap so that they can try to give birth in the most unsanitary conditions with a modicum of dignity. And it's just powerful work, and I'm so blessed that I'm given the opportunity to partake in it. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. 
Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. You know, one of the questions we get all the time through social media is, how can I help? You know, maybe I don't have a ton of money or a lot of free time, but there's got to be something I can do. What advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I love that question. And you mentioned trauma earlier. And, you know, the first thing that I really needed to do was the work on myself. Because trauma not transformed is trauma I will transfer. And when I take radical responsibility for myself and my own healing, then I'm better able to take part in responsible healing in the world. And so I really need to start with my own journey. And sometimes that's taking a look at my origin story, where I still may have some unresolved grief or pain from my childhood. It might be finding a 12-step program that's appropriate for me, or finding a social worker or a trauma-informed evidence-based therapist with whom I can have a bit of a healing journey. And that may sound indulgent and like it's not helping the world, but when I start to heal my own consciousness, that absolutely contributes to the healing in my relationships. And ultimately the world is about relationships. And then that also helps me identify where I am most hurt, where I'm most angry. And that is where I'm going to leverage the greatest good because where I am the most vulnerable and wounded, I think is the space where I can have the greatest stamina and be the most fierce and have the greatest interest and passion for being transformative in the world. And, you know, there's so much that can be done on a community basis. And in terms of national organizations, I really like supermajority. I think that they give individuals really good training and skills and opportunities at the community level. I do all kinds of stuff with supermajority, both from the perspective of Ashley Judd, and then I'm also on their website as just an alias. And I'm like, okay, sure, I can go to somebody's house in my neighborhood this week, or I can make organizing calls, and I've got the software on my computer to, you know, phone bank and just like a quote unquote regular person participate in their activities. But that's, you know, and I don't want to give too many ideas because I don't want to dissipate away from this idea that taking radical responsibility for self is the essential starting place. But it really is because too often we want to jump into, you know, the wider pool and go and save somebody else when the first person we need to really take a look at saving is, is ourself. That's what they say in the 12-step programs, right? And I've, <laughs> I've attended a couple of them. What they say is, just like they say on the airplane, you got to put the oxygen mask on yourself first, right, before you can help your kids or anybody else. I mean, I take really good care of myself because I want to show up in my power, not in my trauma. Right. And so sometimes taking care of yourself is not, it, it mean, you could call it selfish, but it can be the best thing that you do for others. Okay. So we have two traditions here, which are the final two questions that I always enjoy asking our wonderful guests. The first one is, if you had a magic wand, 
and could fix one thing, what would it be? I do think that empowering girls and women completely would change so much. And I would simultaneously improve boys and men's attitudes towards girls and women because that would need simultaneously to be fully adjusted. I mean, it would, it would, it would fix climate. It would just, it would change everything. It would change yeah. everything. Amen yeah. to that. And now a closing of our show is called words of wisdom. Mm-hmm. This is, this is a segment where I, first of all, thank you again for taking your time from your crazy schedule and being here with us to inspire me and everyone else. And then I turn my microphone off and kick back in my chair with my headphones on and just listen to anything else you might want to share. You know, well, something that we haven't talked about yet is how I made my decision to be the New York Times' named source in their investigative report about Harvey Weinstein. I think that I always knew that I would be Jody Cantor and Megan Tui's named source in their investigative report, but I still wanted to do due diligence because I wanted to be able to look back on my process and know that my process had integrity and that I had been thoughtful and thorough. And I think that the moral of that story is that I always like to ask of myself the harder thing and that I have the desire to be a woman of integrity who lives up to the highest calling of myself. And so what I did when it came down to the deadline was I just put on my sneakers, laced them up, and I went for a run on a beautiful rural road in middle Tennessee, and I prayed. And as I was running, I realized I've already made the most important decision that I'll ever make in my life, which is, you know, I've turned my will on my life over to the care of some sort of loving higher power. And I think that, you know, life is hard, life is painful, it's often unfair, but there's essentially something good that is helping me try to find peace in the midst of the pain in the world, whether it's sitting with trash pickers in India or seeing a bullet hole in a bombed out house in Eastern Ukraine where a mama bird has made her nest and she's feeding her babies or, you know, sitting with an exploited woman in Congo who's deaf and in a brothel and can't even communicate with the other sex slaves who are there because they don't have a common sign language with which to try to express themselves to each other. You know, but there's something good that's binding us together in this common desire to make life not just bearable, but somehow connected. And so I was running and I thought, you know, I've already made the most important decision I'll ever make. And whatever happens is a long game. And, you know, it's like Albert Einstein said, I have to make up my mind. The universe is either friendly or unfriendly. And I think it's friendly. And so I called Jody back and I said, I'm prepared to be, you know, your named source in this investigation. I think it's the right thing to do as a woman. And it's the right thing to do as a Christian. And so that's something that I would share. The other thing I would say is just about, you know, I think we're all looking for a little wisdom in life. And I don't think that wisdom is this esoteric ritualistic knowledge that's transmitted behind closed doors by initiated people. I think that wisdom is more caught than taught. And it's about knowing with more of ourselves and knowing more deeply with these carved out parts of ourselves. And that's why it's important to have 
you know, some kind of quiet time every day and a little bit of a spiritual book to read or some, something that expresses my highest values and aspirations and a journaling practice and some kind of self-reflection or meditation. And this doesn't have to be some gymnastic 30 minutes, but just some some quiet time every day to be grounded and centered and to try to connect with with something sweet because the world is a hot mess and life can be very tough but I need to know that I'm cared for in order to genuinely be able to care for other people. Thank you for listening to Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom. Tune in next week when we speak with hip-hop icon Daryl DMC McDaniels and the creative mentor at Road Recovery, Static. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.